Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Pearl Huang. Pearl is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Signal Therapeutics. Signal is a startup dedicated to developing cancer drugs based on some fairly new understanding of the peripheral nervous system. For years, scientists assumed that the peripheral nervous system was merely a conduit of the central nervous system. But what if the peripheral nervous system is not a passive actor in disseminating messages from the brain, but an independent force capable of propagating its own neural signals that help facilitate the growth and spread of cancer? Signal represents a wager that this form of exoneural biology may be one of the keys to understanding oncogenesis and one that's been long overlooked by cancer drug developers. Pearl comes to this work with a wealth of experience. She's a scientist by training and has worked her way up through the ranks at the big pharma companies Merck, GSK, and Roche. In between there, she got her first taste for entrepreneurship as the scientific founder of Beijing. Pearl grew up in a small college town of the upper Midwest, a place much like where I grew up. She has some interesting observations about the remote Upper Peninsula of Michigan, becoming an ACE student who went to MIT when there weren't many women around, and then later in life finding herself comfortable with taking on senior leadership roles. She tells her story well, and it sets the scene for what drew her to this unorthodox approach to cancer being explored at Signal. Now, real quick before we get started, do you enjoy the Long Run Podcast? Maybe you're trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and venture investors. Tell me about your company and why it could be a good fit as an advertiser on this show. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Now, please join me and Pearl Huang on the long run. Pearl Huang, welcome to the long run. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So, Pearl, before we get started, I thought I would share a little vignette with the listeners about uh, our first meeting. This was at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference many moons ago, <laughs> actually just this year, just this year. <laughs> and uh, you um, shared a little bit about your background growing up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, the UP. And yep. uh, this this is something that's you know close to where I grew up in southwestern Wisconsin. Uh, so I thought it was it was just fun to run into somebody who has something in common with me that that geography and that culture i want to talk with you a lot uh, in this show about like what you're doing at signal and the peripheral nervous system approach to cancer because that's you know super interesting uh novel way of thinking i think about cancer biology or at least that we haven't heard a lot about but before we get there let's let's talk a little bit about you and and where you come from Sure. And, and, you know, Luke, from in your part of the upper Midwest, we considered that the tropics. <laughs> Still pretty cold in Wisconsin, but the UP, that's really cold. Yeah, it was very cold. It's uh, I grew up on the Keweenaw Peninsula, which juts up. You know, if you look at Lake Superior, it looks like the head of a wolf. And so where I grew up was right in the mouth of the wolf um, uh, in Houghton, Michigan. Uh, which is was is still the county seat of Houghton County. Houghton, Michigan. Uh, yeah. po- population about what? When I was growing up there, it was about ten thousand, but that included several thousand undergraduate students uh, at a university there, Michigan Technological University, uh, which was started by the mining industry, uh, which uh, you know in the late eighteen hundreds, early. 1900s, uh, that's how the area opened up economically because, let's face it, it, it's, it was a hard place to live. And so you had to have, uh, you know, economic incentive to build a community there. Uh, and so that whole area uh, uh, was built on copper mining and then uh, the lumber industry. And it's on Lake Superior. So this is this, you know, remote and cold, rural, small town place, mining history. Michigan Tech is a university gets that grows up out of that history. Yeah. How did you and your family end up at Houghton, Michigan and Michigan Tech? Uh, so my dad taught at Michigan Tech. So I'm the child of a academic. 
Uh, he's an engineer, civil engineer. Uh, he retired from uh, MTU as uh, dean of engineering many years later. Uh, but it was a magical place to grow up. It was a wonderful place to grow up. And um, I remember the, uh, you know, one of the, the people took pride. We all took pride uh, in the fact that it was a small town and that it was remote and that we had, you know, the grit to live there. I think that was kind of generally understood. Um, and, and, you know, one of, the, one of the fun things we used to talk about was, you know, about five hours away was Green Bay, Wisconsin, and, and they had an escalator in Green Bay. <laughs> and they had, you know, it was like, you know, after summer vacation, you'd, you'd be back at school. And it's like, what'd you do? I said, oh, I went to Green Bay and I rode the escalator. That was a real, <laughs> that was a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the big city of Green yeah, Bay, that's uh, right. which, you know, is known for being small town USA. And that yeah, was five, five hours south. Yeah. Um, now we say cold, like how, how cold would it get there in the wintertime? Well, you know, um, I, uh, you know, in the minus, in the minuses, there was, we were right in the mouth of Superior. So we got a lot of snow. So in a way, the snow was insulating to be honest. So, yeah, it was cold. I, you know, we had different, I, I have uh, colleagues, uh, uh, you know, who uh, lived in Montreal or uh, uh, people who went to uh, McGill in Montreal and, and they talk about how the clothing is different there. Um, it, it was true in the upper Midwest as well when you, you're, you know, you often wore multiple layers and uh, the coats were heavier, the boots were thicker. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you, it was just, a, you, you know, humans adapt. Now, um, your dad was a professor at Michigan Tech. What did your mom do? My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and uh, she was a teacher. Um, and there were six of us, so she had a lot of teaching to do. <laughs> and, and, and she was very good at it. So, yeah. Well, so did you get homeschooling, or did you go to the local public school? Oh, local public school, for sure. Mm -hmm. I went to a school uh, that had grades kindergarten through 12 in the same building. Uh, there were, I think, 100 and, 111 or 112 people in my graduating class in high school. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. so, That's actually very similar to where I grew up. Yeah. Graduation class of about 150. Um, okay, so uh, um, now where did your parents come from? Uh, so my parents um, both came to the United States, I would say, late 40s, early 50s. Both of them came from China. They met in the United States at uh, actually University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And um, my dad uh, is from Hunan province, which is sort of central China where the food is spicy and the people are uh, outspoken. And my mom grew up in Shanghai in the French Quarter, a uh, very sophisticated uh, city. Uh, they used to joke that uh, she was the city mouse and he was the country mouse. Uh, uh, interesting. So they, uh, they met in Illinois and settled down uh, as kind of classic immigrants. Sounds like young adults build a yep. family. Um, yeah. And, and you said this was a magical place for you to grow up. I mean, why? what was it about that time and place that makes you say that? Because I would imagine a lot of people listening to this might think, huh, Chinese-American immigrants in, you know, the, the remote, small-town, rural, upper Midwest, that, you know, sounds like, you, you know, you, you weren't exactly, you know, in Shanghai anymore. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, it, um, I think it all has to do with, my parents and how they raised us, right? And so uh, they embraced this new wild place because it, it truly was wild <laughs> and, uh, you know, saw it as a great opportunity to raise a family and, and they did. Uh, it was very, we were very exposed to nature, very close to nature, very quickly you could get on the shores of Superior and it's a rugged, it's a rugged um, place, right? And so um, rocks, trees, um, water, uh, wildlife, uh, very, very long trails uh, where you could go hiking and not see anybody for hours. Uh, that was kind of normal. So as and, a kid, did you yeah. like explore a lot? Uh, oh, yeah. Or did you go out, go out with neighbor kids and just like, you know, long periods of unsupervised time and, yeah, you know, absolutely. safe and place? I, 
Yeah. And I think many people in my generation had that experience of long hours of unsupervised time, which I know today we bemoan unstructured, the loss of unstructured play. Um, yeah. Uh, unstructured play was a big part of growing up. That was part of the joy. I ask that partly because I noticed this tidbit on your LinkedIn profile where you, you list Westview uh, grade school. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> yeah. this is the school you just referenced, right? Um, no, most people don't do that. Why do you list that? Oh, that was funny because so so actually we moved as a family to the Upper Peninsula when I was five. And so um, what uh, the amusing part is, so when I was in kindergarten, uh, I was there was a little, you know, small town newspaper article about um, three children who uh, came whose parents immigrated to America. And they took a little picture of us pointing. I remember, you know, being asked to dress up for that day and I had my hair and pigtails and uh and then we were all asked to pose around a book and asked to point to the pictures in the book. It was, you know, typical small town stuff. But it turns out um that that the two other people in the um photograph are people uh, uh we've actually made contact. And so so I you know, in it's an acknowledgement of that interaction, um uh, even though it happened a very, very long time ago. Huh. Okay. Okay. So you're, um, you you had this small, uh, school, uh, class of 111. What kind of student were you? Oh, supremely nerdy. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, was, it's, it was an interesting situation because I, uh, I, the teachers, the school gave me great freedom, uh, which, um, I, you know, when I look back, it was quite an unusual situation. So I, uh, we had a, a uh, we had a uh, policy in the school where you could do math on your own speed, as long as you you know met all the marks and took all the tests, uh, you could do it on your own. And so, I loved math, and and I you know I I eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So, uh, I actually, and 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 the teachers kind of just guided me and let me do it. I, I actually ended up skipping my senior year in high school because uh, I'd, I'd pushed through the classes so quickly and I ended up actually taking calculus because there was no calculus offered in our school. This is a small town, right? And, and so it was a small town, but it also had a university there. Uh, and when I look back and see the flexibility that the school gave to me and the support they gave to me, because I was just the supremely nerdy kid who couldn't get enough math. <laughs> it, it uh, you know, I, I, I'm very grateful that that they gave me that opportunity. Did they have some kind of you know gifted and talented program, or they give you some extra challenges? No, not really. I, you know, it was, it, it was all sort of me bringing it to them. They did uh-huh. give me a test. They, you know, there was this American Mathematical Society test where you had five problems, and you know the. And, and because of those kinds of tests, I got exposed to, uh, you know, higher levels of math I didn't even know existed. But also I ended up attending a National Science Foundation summer program at Berkeley on applied mathematics. And I, uh, where I made friends, I was 16, I made friends I, that are still my friends today because, you know, it was, it, it was a group of about 50 supremely nerdy kids who got together for the first time met each other for the first time and realized there were other supremely nerdy math kids all from all around the country. Um, and so it was uh, through the generosity of the National Science Foundation that this was made possible. And um, that program doesn't exist anymore. Many of these programs don't exist anymore. Well, but it was but transformative for me. That, you know, Berkeley, that's a, that's a world away. Um, yep. And I'm sure that was part of, you know, getting on a plane and going to California. That must have been exciting at, at 16. Oh, yeah. Um, Definitely. So, but now it is a university town, Houghton. And there, uh, it's got an engineering and mining emphasis. So, I mean, were there other kids in the class that were, you know, pretty nerdy too? You know, professor's kids? Oh, sure. And, and um, you know, it was a... There, I'd say it was probably split 50-50 university kids versus town, you know, uh, the kids who just, you know, grew up in the town. And so um, there was a diversity there. There was also a bit of a shuttle because, you know, people in any university town, people come in, 
they stay a few years, they leave. And so there were always new people coming and going. And, and that was always fun and always very interesting. Okay. Okay. So you, you are uh, something of a precocious student. You're graduating at what, 16, 17, skipping yep. senior year? Yeah. Uh, you go to MIT. Yep. Um, and did you have an idea what you wanted to do at that young age? Or was it just, you know, uh, take some more math and science and challenge yourself? I knew I wanted to do research because I wanted to do things that were completely new. <laughs> that's all I knew. And, uh -huh. and, and I think that's, when I think back, I mean, that's pretty much defined my entire life is, is being attracted to something that doesn't exist yet or something that's new. How so, yeah, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. How did you adapt to MIT? Because that can be a pretty tough place for undergrads. Yeah, it was on one hand, I felt like I had gone home. Uh, on the other hand, it was really tough. It was very tough. And, um, you know, I, I'm involved with MIT as an alum today. And I have to say it, it's a much friendlier place to an undergraduate now than it was when I was there. Um, I was also, when I was there, the ratio of men to women was nine to one. And that made it a little bit weird. And, um, but I had no reference point. So for me, that was kind of normal. Then when I went to graduate school at Princeton and I, I saw there were, you know, it was 50-50 men and women. And <laughs> that to me was a little bit strange. <laughs> so, were you a little bit scared or intimidated going off? Uh, or, or were you just, had you gotten a pretty thick skin by that point and you were ready for MIT? That's a good question. I think I thought I was ready. You know, does anybody at the age of 17 really know? <laughs> so, yeah. but yeah, I mean, thick skin is, you know, if you get over 300 inches of snow every winter, I guess that's how you get one way you can get thick skin. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. So you decided you wanted to do um, research and um, how did it become, you know, more focused over time for you on biology? Oh, I, um, I, I, biology's always been uh, kind of my, my, my main interest. And I think part of that comes from growing up in the UP and, you know, just being close to nature a lot. Um, and just being curious about what's around you. Um, I, I think the, the mystery of biology is, is so, is, is so great. Right. And so and and you have these sort of thermodynamically independent events that are happening. Uh, and, and that's what that's what life is. And so the uh, uh, trying to understand how that works and and why it works uh, is always going to be interesting to me. Um, so I always knew biology would be of interest. I didn't know if it was going to be a hobby or a profession. Right. Because, you know, if you're if you like natural history, that could be a hobby. Uh, it could also be a profession. Uh, but, um, you know, the way you satisfy your curiosity as a natural historian is you can go to many, many different places. The planet offers you, you know, almost an infinite variety. Uh, you can also stay in one place and go very deep. Um, but I wanted to discover things that were new, not just for me, but, you know, at the, at the you know... <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound pretentious, but not just for me, but for everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, let's move on to graduate school. You go to Princeton. It's molecular biology. That's your uh, that's your focus. Who was your advisor and what kinds of projects did you uh, get to work on? So I was in the laboratory of Tom Schenk, who's a virologist. Tom just retired uh, last year. Uh, so uh, I had actually... Uh, worked in his lab before it got set up at Stony Brook. So this is a long, it's, it's a long tale, but uh, he hired me uh, as a, a technician because I had left MIT. I'd finished MIT and I wasn't quite sure where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And uh, actually a professor of mine, Phil Sharp, uh, said, you should go check out this guy, Tom Shank, he's young, he's starting his lab, but he's a go-getter. He introduced me to Tom. Uh, 
Tom hired me uh, to work in his lab for a year while the graduate program got set up there. It was the genetics uh, graduate program at Stony Brook. And uh, so uh, I took full advantage of Stony Brook in that uh, there was a joint graduate program with Cold Spring Harbor. And so I rotated through yeast genetics labs, biochemistry labs, bacterial genetics labs, and uh, and finally decided to return back to do virology with Tom. Uh, and that's when he announced we were all moving to Princeton. And so that's actually how I ended up at Princeton. Uh, and so I got to watch how this new department, uh, well, it was, a, it was an existing department, but it was revitalized by his move and, uh, and others. Uh, and, and so what got to watch how this, uh, this new department of molecular biology was formed. But um, so you started as a, as a technician, not as a yep. graduate student. So you're yep. actually like making a salary, probably not a lot, but yep. <laughs> you know, you're, you're sampling from the buffet, if you will, of, of different kinds of work that was being done and getting your hands dirty. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and prior to that, I, uh, I did several undergraduate research projects. I worked in a diagnostics lab, and to to this day, that has that has helped me understand, you know, how biomarkers work and the importance they have in clinical trials. Uh, yeah, I did a little bit of everything. I was a work study kid, right? So I had to work while I was in school, and so I used that opportunity to learn. Okay. Okay. So you go with Tom to Princeton, uh, and um, what what became your thesis? So I worked on a, a a virus that everybody knows about today, but nobody knew about it then, called AAV, and um, it was we used to say it was almost a virus because it has a dependency on adenovirus, which was the main focus of Tom's lab. And so, to be honest, I worked on many different things in Tom's lab. I kind of did the uh, Vonderweg, you know, where I worked a little bit on plant viruses, and I worked a little bit on, you know, adeno and alternative splice forms of potential proteins. I, you know, worked on um, all kinds of different things and then landed on AV, and AV is what I wrote my thesis on. Now, what year would this have been? Sorry to date you here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. 1990. 1990. Okay. So this is, I mean, were people talking about AAV for gene therapy then? No. I know gene therapy was just kind of beginning, but it wasn't yet AAV vector. Right. It was all adeno. And then, uh, so everybody was saying, you know, crippled ad fives, maybe ad twos, you know, the, uh, it, it, you know, that took its course. AV, the big question about AV was, does it integrate and does it do something that we're not quite sure, you know, we're not quite sure how AV works. And so is it is that something that's that's risky to do? But um, actually, there was a postdoc in the lab, Jude Samulski, I'm sure everybody knows his name, who had the vision for gene uh, therapy for AV from the very beginning. Uh, and he has, you know, made that real over time. Yeah. Well, over a long time. Yeah, <laughs> um, agreed. That's what it takes, though. It's the yes. long run. <laughs> well, that's why we call the show the long run. One of the reasons. <laughs> um, okay, so you, I mean, you, you get your PhD from Princeton. I mean, you're working on um, virology, AAV. I mean, maybe it wasn't, it wasn't, it was kind of obscure at the time, as you say. But um, yeah, I mean, you could do a lot of different things. The world's kind of your oyster at that point in biology. Uh, what did? But you decide? Did you decide to go to industry shortly thereafter, or how did you decide to yeah. go there versus uh, an academic career? So, I actually had a postdoc lined up uh, with a young faculty member at Princeton to do stem cells, uh, look at hemopoietic stem cells, and I found that biology to be really fascinating and very tractable. Right. Because the one thing I, I learned during my Vonderweg in graduate school was you can pick a great problem, but if it's not ready to be solved, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> and so so that system seemed very, uh, very exciting to me. So I was heading in that direction. But uh, I also uh, had two kids when I was in grad school. I had uh, my first two kids uh, at that time. And so um, the. Uh, it occurred to me that it might be a good idea to break even uh, if I was going to continue to work. And I did, you know, I went through back then, 
Um, there were, you know, uh, institutional daycare wasn't a normal thing. Uh, support for working mothers wasn't a normal thing. I know, you know, when I, I know for, I, you know, my husband and I, here, I'll, I'll my husband and I eloped uh, when I was in graduate school. And when I came, we did it on, I think we did it on a Saturday and I was back in the lab on Tuesday. And my, <laughs> and my advisor said, so I suppose you're just going to, you know, be a housewife now. And I said, I have no intention of doing that. And he, he kind of looked confused and goes, okay. <laughs> and so, and so, I mean, that was But, it, but it's the, pretty much like you figure it out, right? I yeah, mean, the, yeah. The, the, and, there wasn't and, a lot of support. Right, Still right. isn't as much support as it probably needs to be. Right. But. Well, it's much better now. Um, and it can still get much better. It will get better. Uh, I'm optimistic about that. But, um, um, yeah. You're really so, juggling. You're juggling a lot, it sounds oh, like. Oh, yeah. And, and so... I had a conversation with the chairman of my department and he said, you know, maybe you should think about industry. Just think about it. And so he introduced me to Ed Skolnick, who had, you know, just joined Merck West Point, which isn't that far from Princeton. It's just across the river in suburban Philadelphia. And um, long story short, I ended up going straight from graduate school to a 543 senior research biochemist at Merck uh, about a month after I finished uh, my uh, dissertation and defended it. Okay, so uh, Merck, I mean, this uh, would have been early 90s, you know, yep. kind of Merck was kind of at the peak of its uh, great public reputation, most admired company in America, probably gives you decent salary, decent benefits. Did they have something to, uh, to help um, working moms? Uh, you know, at the time they didn't, but, you know, while I was there, they opened an on-site daycare center. Okay. Uh, you know, they have flexible hours. It was, I found it to be, you know, really refreshing just to be in a business environment after being in an academic environment. And remember, I grew up in a college town. My dad was an academic. And so I had no idea what to expect from business. Um, but um, I found it really refreshingly professional. <laughs> and, and I really thrived in that environment. And um, what kind of work were you doing? And did you find it intellectually stimulating? Oh, yeah. And, and so I have to say that the guy, when I was offered, you know, I gave a seminar and, and it was based on my graduate work, which, you know, it was solid, but it wasn't that, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't cell worthy, right? But it was a solid piece of work. And then, and so I was surprised when after my seminar, the hiring manager said, I'm going to offer you a job. And, uh, and I, I said, well, I was caught unaware because I didn't think any, I was, you know, I was young. And I, and I said, well, you know, could it be a postdoc? Because I, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I wasn't sure what pharma was going to be. And I had as many people telling me don't go to pharma as do go to pharma because this was 1990. And so, um, what was what were they saying? Like turning to the dark side, yeah, kind of stuff. And and also, uh, you know, people don't really, uh, you know, the science isn't great there. And and actually, that's why uh, the chairman of my department said, uh, "Go talk to Ed Skolnick because his his science is superb." Yeah. Right. So you can trust that. If you like listening to the Long Run podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing, the writing of contributing writers, and all of it will help you get ahead of the curve. It's a bargain at $169 a year for an individual to subscribe. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe to show your support today. And are you a fan of the Long Run Podcast? Trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and venture investors? I don't accept PR pitches for guests on this show, but I do have room for one or maybe two advertisers on this show. For more information, write to me at luke at timmermanreport.com. So, okay, so you go there to uh, Merck West Point. Yeah, and um, you're there for the, almost ten years. Yeah, and the first project I 
was put on, it was astounding to me, was looking at um, E7RB interactions for cervical cancer. And um, what was astounding to me was, number one, the quality of the science. Uh, number two, how immediately I was welcomed onto a team and, uh, and the resources that were made available to just start solving problems. And so this was a new uh, department. It was called Cancer Research. It was run by a guy named Alan Olaf, who, um, you know, who, who led the group and offered me the position. Um, in fact, I, let me finish this conversation. So I said to him, you know, if I, you know, the thing about a postdoc is, you know, I can, can I still publish? And, you know, after two years, if I leave, you know, that, you know, I might decide not to stay. And, and he's, he said to me, are you telling me you don't want to work for Mother Merck for the rest of your life? <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and so he said, tell you what, I'll, I'll do everything I can to help you publish your data when it's time. And I won't be offended if after two years you come into my office and say, I have to move on. And so, yeah, uh, you know, what happened was I fell in love with drug discovery. So, and also I just had a, a heck of a time just doing wonderful science. And, um, and so the, that first program, uh, we actually identified uh, the theory was uh, we knew at the time that E6 from HPV bound to P53 and inactivated P53. We knew that E7 bound to RB and somehow inactivated this tumor. These are both tumor suppressors. So we thought, well, if we break up the interactions, then perhaps we can stop cervical cancer, which is caused by these viral infections. So um, the, the challenge, of course, was that E7 and RB was a protein-protein interaction. Those are still... Uh, some of the harder targets to take on. But uh, my role in all of this was uh, to actually identify the cellular competitors for E7. Because if E7 was binding to RB, RB had to be binding to something else in a healthy state, and nobody knew what those proteins were. Um, so uh, I joined a team that had already started to build reagents to do the experiment, but it was up to me to design you know, the experiment that would um, identify this new, these new cellular pathways. And so, uh, boy, did I have a good time. I had well, a that, great time doing that. And, um, yeah. That, that, uh, that's really interesting science because at oh, that time, yeah. I mean, P P53 was already known then as like the king of all tumor suppressor genes. I mean, gosh, if you could intervene with that, uh, I mean, it would be fantastic for whole varieties of, of cancer. Um, and, you know, you're at Merck, right? So there's other people there who are aces on medicinal chemistry and like, figuring out how to make the molecule that might bind yep. with these protein-protein interactions. But you're actually focusing on the biology. I mean, this yep. is the kind of thing that could have could have very well happened back where you were. Um, yeah, no, it was Exploring wonderful. new biology. It was wonderful. And um, one of the saddest and most uh, critical days of my career was when we stopped that program. Uh, so uh, in... in in doing that project, we identified RB binding proteins. They're still out there. In fact, I visited Dana-Farber less than 10 years ago, and there was a postdoc just coincidentally uh, giving a seminar on RBP1, which is what he was working on, which, you know, at one point, a professor in the room said, did you realize that the person who cloned RBP1 is sitting here in the audience? <laughs> and so that was kind of that was it was fun knowing that you know somebody was was still carrying on uh, the you know the legacy of trying to understand how these how these uh, how these proteins work and how they contribute to cancer. But um, but our program was stopped and it was stopped because Merck decided that uh, it was going to go for an HPV vaccine. And you know if you thought it through, a vaccine would make any molecule we would invent obsolete because they decided to go for a preventative uh, move. And, and we all know what happened. There was, there's an HPV vaccine uh, made by Merck, and it's, it's, a, it's a part of our lives now. Quite and, a success story. And quite Gardasil. a success story. But for me, I, you know, I had, this was some of the best science I'd ever done. I, I asked myself, you know, do I, do I stay here and keep going, or do I go pursue great science somewhere else. And my very, very clever boss threw me on a drug discovery program. Um, 
And I immediately fell in love with drug discovery because it's a kind of applied science. that I, I don't, I've never seen uh, the scope and the depth of activity anywhere else. So maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're designing a new computer or if you're building an air, designing a new airplane or, you know, maybe that's what that's like. I don't know because those worlds are foreign to me, but the, the depth and breadth of expertise, thinking, problem solving, and uh, novel ideas that come into play to successfully do drug discovery uh, was and still is one of my you know, my greatest joys so to be a part can of you it. Be a little, can you be a little more specific about that depth and breadth? I mean, how many people are we talking about that you would be like part of a, a group in drug discovery? Is it sure. like 100 or 200? It, it can be. I mean, the, it depends on what stage you're at and to what level an organization wants to invest. Uh, the biggest project I was on at Merck was on the fire cell transferase project. We estimated there were 100 chemists at one point and almost 100 biologists working together on trying to solve that problem. Um, I think everybody knows the fire cell transferase inhibitors, which were targeting the oncogene RAS, didn't make it as an anti-cancer uh, therapeutic strategy. Uh, but I got tossed onto that particular project late, uh, sort of if you think of it as as a, if you're climbing the mountain. I, I got thrown onto it at the peak of the mountain, which was also when there was so much data, it was also very confusing. And so <laughs> there was a need to sort it all out. And, and uh, I played a, a role in that. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a, these were, every day was a go, no go decision. And that was exciting. And it was also exciting because it was based on data. And, and I remember giving a presentation to the working group, a big room filled with lots of people. And, you know, my boss said, okay, are you willing to stake, recognizing the importance of the result, are you willing to stake your career and your salary on this result? Which, you know, he asked me in front of everybody. Uh, and I, my, I had, my gut instinct was, I said, I'm, I'm so confident of this data, I'm willing to stake your career and your salary on it because it's much bigger than mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Which is a hard thing to do in any situation, especially, you know, we're talking science. I mean, there's always more data, more questions sure. that can be collected sure. and, you know, to gain more confidence. But, sure, um, but there's, uh, but, you know, the, there are those moments where you are sure and, and you feel confident making a decision. So I, you know, I, it's very, I, I can't think of nearly any, I mean, the only things that are for sure are death and taxes, right? And everything else you've got to figure out. Well, so, but this is what you're, I think you're getting at is this, this kind of intuition that some of the best scientists have to have. It's like, it's, it's informed, it's deeply informed by data and, and experience and, but there's, there's like an intuition, there's, there's a hunch um, that, that enters the equation. Yeah, I think that hunch comes from really understanding what you're measuring and understanding if what you're measuring is is a surrogate of something else or something that's real and then you know how it fits into the big scheme and and experience helps you with that but also i i i'm sure you've heard this from many people you have to you have to walk into the room uh, completely agnostic as to what will happen or what the data will tell you you have to just figure it out Okay, Pearl, uh, I think we're going to fast forward through middle parts of your career here because <laughs> you, you moved around pharma. You, you were at Merck, you went to GSK, I think you went back to Merck. Yeah, there, there were a couple st stops at each place, GSK and Merck, and then there was Roche <laughs> before yeah. you end up at Signal. But um, maybe the, the way to think of this is how did you end up moving from like the bench scientist, the person like really right in there, like with the sleeves rolled up hard on these projects and then moving into management, becoming like a VP and then an SVP? Yeah, um, I for me, it wasn't a very smooth transition because... Uh, it never occurred to me to be one of those people with one of those titles. So I remember um, being asked to do more, right? And this was when I was still at Merck. I would be, 
and I, you know, can you give this presentation? Can you do this? Can I say, yes, of course, of course. And I remember being in the tissue culture hood because I had a group of people and we had our own lab and um, I was in the tissue culture hood and my boss ran in and said, what the heck are you doing in here? <laughs> this is not a good use of your time. And, you know, everybody else started giggling, you know, because, you know, I, I eh, you know, when you don't uh, want to let go of your uh, of what yours is familiar to you and what you enjoy, uh, but it becomes clear to others that uh, you could be doing you're needed somewhere else. But also, you're no longer the best person to be doing that job, right? Because mm -hmm. you get distracted, because you're being asked to do other things, because you're being asked to work at another level. So, um, you know, I I think I could have done that more gracefully if I had been more introspective or perhaps more uh, savvy about organizations and roles, but I just kind of figured it out as I went along. So, so management didn't necessarily come natural. You had to get comfortable with the idea of, of channeling your experience and guidance through other people. That, that took a process, it sounds like. So I think the, it wasn't, it, you know what I didn't want? I didn't want the authority but I was perfectly happy to give everybody my opinion on what should be done. <laughs> so so I, I, that took, a, you know, uh, took some maturing on my part to understand that those two things go together if you're going to do them well. And so you, know, you wake up one day and you say, well, do I want this authority? And is the, am I happier? Is the world better if I take this authority? And for me, the answer was yes. Yeah. Interesting. So without talking about each one of these stops along the way, maybe you could talk just a little bit about Roche. You're an SVP there and you're focused on a variety of modalities. And now now we're in the, the recent past, right? Yep. This is like the mid 2010s or just before you came to Signal. What was interesting about that role and that job? Um, you know, that that was a great job. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me. So it was, uh, I was head of a group called Therapeutic Modalities. And uh, our job was to basically invent the medicines. And it was, uh, we were agnostic as to what the right modality would be. We would let the biology of the disease and the target tell us what the right modality was. And the choices we had in hand were, you know, small molecules, which Roche is, you know, traditionally very strong at. Uh, biologics, which uh, uh, I learned uh, Roche was also very good at uh, in a, a group in Pennsburg, Germany, uh, uh, which was part of the Roche uh, organization. Um, uh, and uh, nucleic acid therapeutics through locked nucleic acids, uh, which uh, the company uh, was brought into the company through the acquisition of Centaurus in Copenhagen. So that's what that's what we started with. Um, but uh, the beauty of it was we worked across all therapeutic areas. We uh, considered all modalities, and so uh, we would start off any project with the best possible chance of succeeding and making it uh, all the way to the patients. And um, the other challenge of that position for me was it was a big organization and across multiple countries, but uh, that was the experience I was looking for. And so uh, I, I grew a lot, I learned a lot, uh, and I got to see, I got, I got to see uh, into every therapeutic area's uh, strategies and thinking, and, and also, it's really a, yeah, it's really a great time with the biology becoming much more clear, like better tools, like the genomics revolution, exactly. proteomics. I mean, exactly. imaging. All this stuff is happening to better characterize the biology, and at the same time, you've got all this stuff going on with. Uh, protein engineering and and different kinds of small molecules against things like you mentioned earlier, protein-protein interactions. Yep. So there's like, you, you got different modalities. You can actually sit down and think more strategically from the start about what's the right tool for the task to intervene right. with this disease biology. 
Uh, and you're Roche, right? You got a lot of resources. You yep. can, I mean, you can't buy everything in the world, but <laughs> you, you can do a lot. Yeah. And um, at least in theory, you can. And, uh, you know, part of what you have to master uh, is the ability to influence the whole organization to move together. And um, that, from I would say, is the biggest challenge of any big organization because, you know, I've been in multiple big pharmas in different roles. Uh, when pharma decides to do something and really, you know, really commit to it, you can't stop them. They're, they're going to succeed. Uh, but the key part is getting to that point of commitment and organization where everybody uh, gets behind each other. And of course, that, that happens as you're in late stage, phase three, marketing, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing. That's all very well aligned there. But in R&D, uh, you know, you need to allow creatives to do what they do best. And it's uh, you have to encourage it. You can't necessarily harness it. And so um, there's a lot of great innovation that happens in big organizations, but uh, I was intrigued and curious uh, to see what I could do with a smaller one. Okay, so um, you, uh, how did you end up getting in touch with Flagship about this thing we now call Signal? Yeah. Um, so I had actually seen Signal when it was an idea uh, because we were in a fairly regular dialogue with Flagship Pioneering. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, uh, early in 2018, a bunch of us from Roche senior executives went and were given a presentation about the portfolio of emerging companies at Flagship Pioneering. I think I can tell the story, right? And and so uh, there were three companies that rose to the top in our interest. I was there with my then boss, John Reed. And one of those companies was Signal because uh, the concept was so intriguing. And, uh, you know, intuitively, you kind of you kind of say, to, well, there has to be something there. It makes too much sense. <laughs> and so and, and I learned later that, you know, the the the. Flagship has a, a, a canny ability to start companies that are centered on very simple ideas and very elegant ideas. And, and my first reaction when I learn about them is, how come I didn't think of that? <laughs> you know, but but the fact is, I didn't. Somebody else did. But that, okay, that's the, one of the power. Uh, that's one of the powerful uh, capabilities that Flagship has. For those unfamiliar with this concept, you now call exoneural biology, cancer yep. biology. Um, can, maybe you can start by telling the story. I mean, the observation, and I think it's just kind of one of those, huh, curious observations from 20 years ago at some labs in MGH or uh, MD Anderson as well, that, that there was something going on here with sure. peripheral, peripheral nerves, yep. Uh, yep. perhaps facilitating cancer as uh, rather than just being passive recipients. Yep. And so it goes even bef beyond that, right? Because the fundamental concept is uh, it's universal. And so, you know, the most, um, most well-known example of peripheral nerves talking to non-nerve tissue, because that's what exoneurobiology is. It's about the nerves outside of your central nervous system talking to non-neural cells. Uh, the example we all, the universal example you know of is the Pavlovian response, right? So you, it, it's a, called a conditioned reflex because you learn it, uh, but you learn it because you get hungry and then you, and then you eat. And, and so your brain gets an idea, either because you imagine it or because you smell it or because you see a picture of food. And, uh, and then almost immediately through the peripheral nervous system, uh, your salivary glands and your gastric glands start to secrete. Uh, digestive juices. And so that's an example of, of a conditioned response we all know. There are also other conditioned responses in our bodies that are mediated by the peripheral nervous system. There's a whole area of immunity called conditioned immunity, where uh, something that's mysterious is happening in the brain, and that's truly mysterious. We give it names like emotion and stress, and you know they're ambiguous terms. Uh, but what we know what happens is at the other end of it is that a peripheral nerve is talking to a resident uh, 
immune cell or uh, an organ uh, in, in, a, in a specific setting. And so what Signals decided to do is we're never going to, in our time frame, not going to understand the emotional stress part, what's happening in the brain. But what we can do is put together a technology that allows us to systematically understand precisely the interaction and the signals that are exchanged between the peripheral neurons and the target tissues. In our case, the target tissues where we've started is in oncology. And so it's not just the tumors, but also the, uh, the peripheral nerves in the tumor microenvironment. Uh, it turns out the peripheral nerves have been a major component uh, in many tumors for over the years, but no one had been able to visualize them because the way you do biopsies and IHCs, you actually uh, process your tissue in favor of seeing the cancer cells, right? You're limited uh, in what, you can, what the tools allow you to see. Exactly. And so one of the first things we did was we took the tools of neurobiology, and there's something called clarity imaging, which delipidates the cells and then allows you to visualize and, and stain, you know, the um, uh, the neural component. It was developed by neurobiologists to map the fine structure of neurons in the brain. We used it to map the fine structure of neurons uh, in tumors. And so we see that there are different kinds of neurons signaling in, present in tumors, the different kinds of neurons signaling in different ways in tumors. They signal directly to the tumor. They signal to the blood vessels. They signal uh, to the immune cells that are in the tumor microenvironment. And so each one of these is an opportunity uh, to, uh, to, do, to take a new therapeutic uh, strategy for this particular disease. And part of the strategy of doing oncology was we knew that peripheral nerves touch every organ in your body. And we also knew that nearly every organ in your body can get a cancer. So on the quest to look for something that was a hallmark of cancer or something that was universal, uh, you know, we decided to take on this disease, which still has huge unmet medical need. I've worked in cancer now for 30 years, and I've seen the transition from cytotoxics to, you know, signal transduction to to IO, um, there's still, these are all wonderful advances, and I'm privileged to have been a part of, of some of them, but they're still huge on that medical need. Because, you know, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, the, the kind of this more expansive view of cancer, which has really been one of the big stories of the last, you know, 30 years of science. That is, you know, there was a whole lot of work on the, the oncogenes and the tumor suppressors and figuring out what those were and the signals they sent to, you know, uh, facilitate growth and metastasis. Really, really important work led to some therapeutic interventions. Yep. But the biggest, the, even bigger than that, like it's been this understanding of the tumor microenvironment and how things like uh, angiogenesis works. Uh, tumors, uh, you know, lay down those highways of blood vessels to yep. spread. And, and then, gosh, if you could intervene just a little with the immune system and allow the immune system to do what it's naturally capable of doing, well, that's an amazing, like, now you're not thinking about the tumor like in, in that same kind of narrow way, you're thinking in a more expansive way about unleashing the immune system. One of the biggest ideas. And what you're talking about, what I'm hearing you say is that peripheral nervous system is an actor in this bigger picture as well. Like these nerves, they lay down highways yep. for communication, uh, for tumors to grow and spread. And perhaps there's another point to intervene therapeutically. Yep. Absolutely. And so I should, you referenced this uh, subtly, congratulations, about, you know, data that was already out there. So, you know, there was a specific study, clinical study run by a, a pancreatic cancer surgeon, Keith Lillamo at Mass General across the river from us. Um, and this was done in the late 80s and it was published in the early 90s. And uh, what he was trying to do was uh, alleviate uh, the pain that his late-stage pancreatic cancer uh, patients were suffering from. And so he did a clinical trial where he injected 50% alcohol solution into the nerves that were most proximal to the tumor. And so, you know, you can see, you when once you can visualize the nerves in detail, you realize there are thousands of nerves there, hundreds of nerves there. And so the idea that you could inject all of them, uh, you know, is was is naive. But nevertheless, he was able in this study to demonstrate that the patients who received those injections had a longer survival time than those who did not. And 
he, uh, at the time, I remember this was the early 90s, and I was uh, in a signal in a at cancer research at Merck where we were living, breathing RAS, right, which is 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 mutated in 90% of pancreatic cancer. And I remember a pancreatic cancer doctor coming to us and saying, you know, this is the patients who have less pain have a greater will to live. That's why they're surviving, right? So that's how people interpreted that data, you know, almost 30 years ago. Um, you know, nobody thought, oh, maybe the, the nerve is actually contributing to tumor genesis. And then when you cut it off, you actually can uh, help the patients survive longer. Right, so, right. So yeah. it didn't really occur to people to look at the molecular level. Uh, but now, again, I keep harping on this about the tools. Yeah. We've got we've yeah. got tools to actually look at this and exactly. you can develop you can develop assays for yourself to, to really ask this. Um, exactly. And, and so, can you, I mean, without going chapter and verse on your platform that you're building there at Signal, um, I mean, what are a couple of the key tools that you've put in place there to interrogate some of this biology sure. and, and, and help you get more clarity on where those, those new targets are that you can yep. intervene with? Yep. So we like to say our, our platform's designed to ask to do the last experiment first. And so we use uh, imaging, as I described to you, uh, that helps us understand where uh, innervation is aberrant in the disease state versus normal. Uh, we have tools that allow us to, uh, uh, to take any primary neuron in any disease cell and put them together in vitro to understand and deconstruct the signals that are exchanged between. We can also manipulate those neurons. We can tune them up and tune them down. We can do it in vitro. We can also do it in vivo. We had a sub, uh, have a set of chemical genomics tools that allows us to uh, manipulate uh, the nerves uh, in a disease model and then see if we tune uh, disease burden or and disease signals at the same time. Uh, we do a lot of bioinformatics because we can and because we should and because we also have to find the signal above the noise because, as you can imagine, when you're working with a broad physiology, you get a lot of changes. And so you absolutely need to get to the, the part that's the most critical. And then we use um, uh, tools that many other people have, uh, CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, we knock down genetic components to, to show causality. Right, because uh, just because something changes in the presence of a neuron, just because it's related to uh, tumorigenesis, uh, it doesn't mean that in, in the disease setting, if you knock it down or you inhibit, or if you want to agonize, whatever you want to do, that you're actually going to get a clinical benefit. So, so a big part of our bioinformatics is also utilizing and reaching into patient data sets, because when you discover new biology, uh, we've learned you want to know as soon as possible uh, if the signaling that you, you have discovered, the aberrant signaling you've discovered is actually happening in, in patient cohorts. And so those are fundamentally the tools. We, of course, do drug discovery, just like everybody else. Um, we can, we have, uh, a team that can do both large molecules and small molecules, a very experienced and successful team. Uh, uh, the scientific leadership in our organization together has over 100 years of successful drug discovery and development experience. And so the, the thing is today, unlike when I started 30 years ago, it's relatively, and this is, I use the term relative, it's relatively straightforward to make a high quality molecule against a target. If you choose wisely, if you make the right decisions, and if you innovate, uh, so you're agnostic. You're agnostic about the modality. Could be a small molecule. Could be the, a lar large yeah. molecule. Whatever the biology is telling you, you yeah. follow that. Yep. Yeah. But you can do this today. We can do this today as a small company because uh, there's so many resources outside uh, that can help us do it and be our partners along the way. Uh, How far? Ten, ten years ago, I, I don't think it was something you could do. How far along have you come? I mean, you've been there for a couple of years. The company was kind of in stealth mode. I guess sort of still is um, for a couple <laughs> yep. years. Um, how, uh, can you give us a progress report? Sure. Uh, so we're not revealing any specifics at the time about our pipeline, but uh, we have two programs that we're very excited about. One is in a family of neuride and axonal growth factors. So there are three basic buckets that we draw from neurobiology, which are part of our core biology and understanding and expertise. 
neuronal and axonal growth factors is one. Uh, our second category we call synaptic functions. These are, you know, the proteins that form synapses between nerves. They're known to form. They're they're all well characterized by neurobiologists. They also include uh, proteins and signals that are exchanged with in synapses between neurons and then uh, the other proteins that are involved in integrating their signals uh, uh, in the neural setting, but we're looking at all of this now in, a no in novel settings. And then uh, the last category is, uh, you know, is ion channels and membrane integrity, right? Because you know, the neurons are uh, electrical conduits as well. And so uh, the components that have been described by neurobiologists as playing a role in mediating those signals, uh, we know a lot about them. But once again, we're looking at these in the context of not nerve-nerve interactions, but nerve-disease cell interactions. And, and so there's a lot of novel insight here. Uh, but our two programs, and the one in uh, neural and axonal growth, and the second one is a synaptic function target. Uh, those are the programs uh, we started almost a year ago uh, today. And uh, we, they're progressing very well. And we will start two new programs this year uh, very judiciously because we're a small company and we can't do everything we want to do. Uh, so we're being very strategic about what programs we take forward and which ones we invest in. And the two that we've got going are, are moving along splendidly. Do you uh, plan to publish in detail about your platform and, and a little bit about some of these lead programs? We're at a stage where we have uh, a publication strategy. It just came together actually in the last few days. Uh, we've been focused on getting the patents filed. And so, you know, that's been our, our, our primary focus in terms of capturing the value of what we're doing. But yes, we, we do intend to publish in the next 12 months and, uh, and uh, get this out there because uh, it's very exciting science. We did sponsor a meeting at Banbury uh, conferences uh, in December of last year, less than a year ago, where and it was titled Nerves and Cancer. And so we, uh, we uh, with the help of Banbury, uh, pulled together a group of about 40 scientists working worldwide in this area uh, of, of nerves and cancer, um, but not just oncologists, but immunologists, developmental biologists, and clinicians uh, who've been making interesting observations, like the one I described, but also uh, one's about uh, 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 cytotoxics and how they might work. And so, so putting, pulling everybody together into that discussion, uh, we spent three and a half days together uh, sharing unpublished data, sharing techniques, sharing a vision for this field. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, an essay, an article that came out uh, in Cell, I think it was April or May that summarized some of that discussion, but only at a very high level. I was going to um, say that this sounds yeah. very academic and open and sharing. Uh, did, yeah. did you invite some of your friends from Big Pharma to this meeting, or, or would you like to keep them, you know, a little bit more in the dark for a while longer, so that um, you know they don't bring their overwhelming resources to bear on, on chasing well, you down? I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind more resources in this area. There's plenty to do and there's plenty to share. I guess you know it, it's interesting. I it didn't occur to me to. Uh, bring Big Pharma into the discussion, but maybe maybe we should do that. <laughs> Thanks for the idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, somebody else in, in pharma can thank me for that. <laughs> um, okay, okay. Last thing I want to ask you, Pearl, because I, I noticed in one interview that you gave, you talked about um, joy at work. I mean, you, you seem like you strike me as a, a a joyful person, and you said joy at work is paramount. Yeah. Why, why why do you say that? And was there an experience that you had maybe earlier on that? That informed you and makes you say that. Oh wow! Uh, well, firstly, it, it, personally, I know when I'm happy, I'm I'm more productive. <laughs> it's pretty simple. I also know, and I've been in organizations where people have said to me, you know, the project I'm working on is never going to work, but I have to work on it, right? Um, and to me, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you don't believe it's going to work, it actually isn't going to work <laughs> because you won't have uh, the energy, the insight, the you know the the will to solve the problems that are so hard to solve, right? So um, I absolutely believe that work should be joyful, that people should be happy, and that's the way they're most meaningfully productive. 
And how do you try to cultivate that at your small company? I think it's easier in a small company because, you know, you see everybody almost every day, except, of course, now with COVID. Uh, but uh, you see them, we see each other on Zoom, but um, but it's not the same. Uh, I, I, how do you do it? Well, you have a lot of good food. Uh, you have a lot of good conversations. We have a ping pong table, so, so that's good. Uh, I, I think you do it by listening to people and understanding what they need and also not shying away from the tough discussions and the tough problems. Uh, there, there is joy in solving a hard problem. And uh, the feeling you get after you've done that is, you know, is, is wonderful. So I think when people have the um, experience, of, have that experience, that kind of feeds the whole paradigm. Well, science is hard. And um, if you're not enjoying it, um, there, there are other things to do. Pearl Huang, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.